Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm really excited to talk to uh, Thomas Zimney today. He's, in a way, although he's more than this, I mean, in a way, you're like the Tom Hagen of documentarians. You have one very important client. And uh, although you've made, obviously, a great Elvis Presley documentary, a two-parter, and I love stuff about that period and, and Elvis, uh, and a uh, wonderful film about Johnny Cash, The Gift, you're most known for uh, really being, uh, was it Boswell or Johnson? Which one was that? You're really known for, uh, for telling Bruce Springsteen's story visually. And I have to say, I have loved these movies that you've made about Bruce. You know, the, the, the myth, and I want to talk about how you serve the myth and the human at the same time, because you've done a great job of that. But if you're a Springsteen person, not a Springsteen fan necessarily, if you're really a Springsteen person, and you're, you know, I'm 54, so I know the bootleg record stores I would go to. I remember when I bought this Guns for Hire, still the best bootleg I've ever heard in my life, uh, Philadelphia Spectrum, like 84, I think. You had always heard the legends of what happened in the making of Born to Run, the making of Darkness. And the access you got, which I want to talk about, and these films that you made, uh, Wings for Wheels, The Making of Born to Run, The Promise, The Making of Darkness, uh, the shorter uh, thing you, you did, The Ties That Bind. And then, you know, the last two, men are just... And if people haven't seen these, and, and, and I would say, it's funny, I, I told someone recently, they should watch these, and they said, where? And I said, you got to start from the beginning. You got to watch them. I... I don't mind if somebody goes and watches the newest one. And what's the last one called based on the record? Uh, Letter to You. Letter to You. Uh, but Letter to You and Western Stars, which from a filmmaking standpoint, I mean, you're, you're just so in control. And of course, you weren't relying on archival footage. So you were able to be in control in a way that you weren't uh, on the first couple. But I really think in the same way people have to go and listen to the albums of certain artists or read the books... And I wonder how you feel about this as a, a starting point. Does this body of work feel like this body of work that's yours and Bruce's and maybe Landau's together? Does it feel like your body of work? How do you think about that body of work? And, and do you think that it rewards thinking of in, as, 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 um, as it's Bruce's story, but also do you think it rewards thinking about as a story that Tom Zimney is telling about Bruce Springsteen over time? Well, it's, you know, I, I, when I go into the space of thinking about um, the, the, the things I've learned from Bruce and from John is, is this, this idea of a journey, a journey with records, a journey with writing, a journey with artistic challenges. And early on, as an editor, I started to, right from the very beginning, think about this, this possible dream of working with them and having my own journey in film. Um, you referenced bootleg records and I have to say, I'm holding, I, I have right here, this, this is the vinyl and that's me as an adolescent. I'm holding an old vintage bootleg and-, and um, Oh, and you're on the cover of it as an adolescent at-, at uh, That's me holding the very record. Right, yeah. And that's the start. This is a photo of me at 18, but really at, the reason I reference it, it's, it's at 18, I had these dreams of, 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 of 
telling stories in film, but also was deeply um, moved and affected by two things. One, as a filmmaker, I was dyslexic and I was responding to visuals. And Bruce's films were, uh, Bruce's films, Bruce's songs were very filmic. So the characters early, early on were, were strong and the imagery um, gave me a space to dream. And, you know, fast forward to me working live in New York, I did see this opportunity um, collaborating with him on that project. But then I also dreamt a little bit at like, like we tend to do, like what if I could go past and do another film with him? And then I also knew that I had a history in documentary film and that this stuff meant a lot to me, but also that I could take my life experiences in listening to this music and try to try to get across a story that anyone could step into, the casual fan, uh, the, the, the hardcore fan who knows certain tracks, like straddle this weird line of stepping into the narrative and the story of these records, but also collaborating with Bruce. That was a big dream. The, and, and, and I have to throw John in there as well. But as the, the filmmaker, I, I do see this as a journey. And, and there, is a, there, is a, there is a part of me in, in every one of these projects. And that's, that is not in the forefront, but it's, I see the essence of Darkness on the Edge of Town, how I love certain tracks or how I explored certain parts of the writing. That journey of Bruce on all those films, uh, on all those records, but within all those films, I connected to him. And I stepped into um, his shoes at that moment. With Born to Run, it was really the start of his relationship with John and also a style of writing that he was exploring where he would go through notebooks. And I mean, and the end of his relationship with Mike. And, his, and the end of that relationship, but also um, the power of it, the, the documentary Wings for Wheels, it's about making it born to run, but really it's, it's, it's beauty for me as a filmmaker was that I had themes of dramatic tension and arc and classic storytelling. There's leaving one strong figure behind and, and, and connecting, leaving Mike Appel, his first manager, connecting with John in this deep way that would be for the rest of his life. And also the start of an artistic journey where he was looking at him himself and his writing. And to me, that was, that was this great opportunity. There What's to, so great uh, is that these are also films about craft and documentarians have to care about craft because documentary making, it's an art, a high, a high wire act to pull off and an art, but it's a craftsperson's game, I'd say. And so I spent an inordinate amount of time thinking about genius and the different ways genius manifests. And there are people like Bob Dylan and Miles who seem to be touched by something. And yes, they work at it, but the diligence is so obviously in service of a divine, I'm an atheist, but a divine, a divine kind of an inspiration. 
Whereas what you show in these Springsteen films is that for Bruce, finding the vein is much harder and takes, he's just going to bang at the rock until the fucking thing reveals itself. And the end result is genius. And so it's a facet to, to me, I, when, I, what's so you, what I feel like is, and I wonder if you intend this, what's so useful in a way is Dylan is like the, 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 the kiss on the Buddha's forehead, right? All you could hope to do is kiss his forehead to try to understand. Where Bruce, it's just like wherever he got the inspiration, the, then there's the work. D- does that resonate for you at all? Is 100%. That I think, yeah, 100%. I, I love the analogy. And I, I think it's been a huge influence to be around that energy. Like the idea that you could write a song um, and just hold, give it away and hold it back from using it on the record because it didn't fit the narrative showed such discipline. The idea of, of never really being satisfied with just it's great. Um, you know, there's so many things that I watched him create around me or with me in the films that we put through that very task. And, and that's the collaboration that I love where Bruce takes on this work ethic that you explore something to the very, very end. And there's no, there's no, um, there's no just going halfway through anything. We, I, I think about the many different things I work on in the language of film that we play around with. It could be a 30 second piece that's just dealing with the new album. And we'll get into about the graphics or the, the cut or the details of the music that's being used. Um, you know, like I think of Letter to You, and that was a great example of that work ethic. When I was editing um, that film, and also at almost every occasion when we're collaborating, we're on 24 7. I could get a text from Bruce at any hour of the night, and there's new voiceover, there's a story idea, there's a comment about something that he's seeing or loving or connecting to. I mean, um, you live these films, you have to. And um, as a filmmaker, it's been a huge blessing for me to be around this energy because I have adapted my own work to, to, I hope, A, have that work ethic, but also the the values that he puts into finding it i get because it's a certain it's great uh i love what you're saying because it's not just these words sound similar right it's not just the ability to work hard there's a rigor that bruce brings to bear on this stuff right and and the rigor is such a gigantic difference maker when i think about a song like roulette and i think about the fact that he left roulette off a record now, that's one of those songs that we had on bootleg. If you were a Bruce person, you had that song on bootleg the year after that record came out. You know, you knew about that song. It was rumored. He'd played it places. You finally got Be True and Roulette, those two songs. And you, 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 you couldn't believe that Be True and Roulette existed and they weren't on records. 
But in fact, I would argue that they're a little bit flawed for what they are. They're amazing. They're the best songs someone else would write. Be True has a little bit of a simple thing to it that Bruce wasn't really doing then. And, 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 and Roulette just wasn't better. It's like how he made the choices that later I, like even when I go back to the, like when I go back to the promise and I listen to that song, which is now like one of my favorite Bruce Springsteen songs, but I think he was right. And I think you show in the documentary the, 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 um, really the documentarian's journey. And I would love you to talk a little bit about this. Here's what I say, having only made one, but been around a lot of documentarians, which is you start out prosecuting this thesis and the difference between like the good and the bad ones the doc, is like the good documentarians will realize that they're prosecuting the wrong thesis and then will change and find the right for, thesis to prosecute. And as they get new information, they keep grinding at it until the thing, as opposed, right? Tell me, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, for me, um, I hope I never go into something with, with like just the point of view that is, is set in stone because the gods throw you everything every second in the edit room. And then within that, you have to pivot, you have to change. Yes. Someone said something in an interview. Um, I was working on a documentary about Elvis Presley and um, I had an interview that was going you know, really bad. And, and um, it, it just, what we, it wasn't, I was getting one word response and, and it just was not connecting. And this person uh, said to me uh, that Elvis, when making 68 special, um, uh, watched the Kennedy assassination, saw the Kennedy assassination, and I pivoted immediately to, wait a minute, what's that about? How did it happen? It became the story. You mean the Robert, Ken- the Robert Kennedy? Robert Kennedy, yes, yeah. yes. To be clear. And um, it meant something to me in the moment. And and I was editing the film and, and, and looking at the end of how to finish the 68 special, and I deeply connected to that. Um, the other example with the Elvis film is that I saw a rusted bike at Graceland and, and was obsessed with it. And that became a metaphor. Yeah. You taste these things that, that you are emotionally connected to in the moment and you let go of other things that you thought uh, at times were like the strengths or the key points. There's so many times I've cut something and I go, oh, it just served the gods to get me in the place of making the film. It doesn't belong in the movie. It's really helped me. I love this sequence, but it doesn't work in the whole movie, but it gave me a tone. It gave me a direction. And you, you, you throw it on the cutting room floor because it served its purpose. The, the, the key thing I've learned from Bruce and, 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 and working in the edit room with him is, is being aware of these great mistakes that happen. Being aware of a small moment, like when I was working on Letter to You, there's this moment that um, he's standing next to Steven, they're listening to the playback, and you see them doing hand claps. And in that, I saw two adolescent teens listening to the beginning of rock and roll. That one shot contained everything. There is no question I could you know, contrive, uh, could, could come up with that could cover that beauty. 
of their love and understanding of rock and roll in that one moment. So you, you just try to keep your eyes really open to greatness. Well, look, yeah, and, 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 and people say, there are certain these phrases that artists use that have kind of lost their meaning, even though we accept them. And like, kill your darlings is so important because to me, what it means is there are these things that you think are precious. And so you've told yourself that they matter and you have to hold on to them when you're making something. But what you have to do is keep yourself open enough, right, to know that you can excise them and f- to go for the, the whole, to make the whole really work. And, and I think nowhere is that as true in a way as, as it is in, in the documentary form, because you could justify spending 10 minutes on almost anything, but it might not serve the thematic you're trying to land on, right? hundred percent. I, I had experience with an experience with the Johnny Cash documentary. I had built Which up. I love, by the way. I would love Thank it. You. Yeah. I, I made the documentary and um, watched it in, in a very rough cut form. And then, but it was, it was there. It was in its process. And um, I remember turning to the editor and saying, um, I'm not happy. There's not enough Johnny Cash. In it. And I'm really frustrated. It's not you. It's, I'm, I'm not happy. Until we get Johnny Cash we get the interview with Johnny Cash. I'm not going to be happy. And he laughed at me. He was like, well, Johnny Cash is not a right. Yeah, you can't. And, 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 and with, with that, that whole thing of giving up something, the, the very next day I, I, I came across Johnny Cash audio tapes and threw out the edit that I had worked on for months and started again and rebuilt the whole movie with Johnny's voice. Right, you could lay the voice in and suddenly the thing comes alive and you kept yourself open to being dissatisfied. Yes. And then finding a way to say, yeah, well, what's so great is that your work that mirrors, that the, the, the object of your greatest study mirrors that. And I'm, I'm thinking of actually a moment in a doc you did, I don't think you made, but it, uh, there's that little moment in Blood Brothers, I think, when David Kahn is trying to do the string arrangement sure. and Bruce just isn't digging it yet. Right. And I mean, there's lots of those moments. There's you know a million of them with Jimmy when he's just going like, it ain't there yet, man, you know, in the mix. And they have to bring Chuck in. Um, what was Chuck on? The, is that the darkness one that Chuck came in for the first time or yeah. was? Yeah. Right. Chuck and and cool. they're sitting there. But. But so there's this moment in, in, in a couple of these documentaries, often it's turned on Bruce, but I find it extra fascinating when it's not, when Bruce knows it's not on him. You know, when he looks at David Kahn in Blood Brothers and he's like, this score isn't quite happening. Or when he's looking at Jimmy going, it's just not feeling right on, on, on darkness. And that sort of ability to keep searching I guess I want to start ask you this: When was that your nature as a as a as an adolescent? Were you a searcher? Where I've mean, yeah. talked a little bit in what I've read about you about where this all fit for you, but talk a little bit about it here. I mean, I, I think I think this energy of being able to read a room comes from the place of really relying on visuals and tone. What am I talking about? I grew up in a, as an adolescent, as a dyslexic. So the idea of, of 
really taking cues from yeah. visual yeah. was everything. And, and, and you become a sponge. And that's why you walk, you know, how someone walks into the room is a really important detail. The way the door is closed. Those are the things that, that, I, that are inherent for me as from childhood that also made me an editor to read a scene, read a room, read a direct, read a director's face while watching dailies and see either his excitement or his sadness yeah. and come to the place of trust and say, well, you know, you seem a little bit disappointed with that crane. What was going on? What, what, what's going on when you see the film? And that comes from really a childhood of really uh, adapting to reading a room. There is no, there's no doubt about it for me in, in, in understanding the process. And then also, if you struggle with reading and writing, like I did as an adolescent, there is a certain side of you that just really believes in the power of music, the power sure. of sound as this guiding force that many people get from reading or writing or expressing themselves. So being an adolescent I and connected to music, I quickly started to incorporate those two things. I have so many things I want to ask you. Well, no, my, my daughter is um, dyslexic in a, and has written about dyslexia a, a lot. And as a young person, it was pretty defining for her. And, you know, the she's 21 now, but it's still and, and straight A's at school and she's a writer and all that stuff. But like, you know, it was the defining thing. We've had many, many conversations uh, about it and gone through many heartbreaking moments together. She's like I say, she's she's written about. So I. I that leads me to a bunch of questions, which is um, many dyslexics feel stupid for big periods of their lives and feel like they believe it's their failure. So our generation, there wasn't a great awareness of how to remediate these things like there is now. And I had really bad ADHD and I had behavioral issues as a result of that. And um, meaning I would just wise off in class and be bored. I, I wasn't throwing people around or punching people or anything, but I was difficult, you know? Uh, and maybe I had like a, I had to teach myself to read. I may have had a Susan of uh, dyslexia, but I, I like, I somehow was able to decode. I, I like kind of taught myself uh, my own way, but did you feel, uh, but there were times when I could not understand the gulf between what I thought was an understanding of a bunch of stuff and my inability to succeed at school. And that gulf was sometimes kind of crippling, and I saw it for my daughter. So how did that hit you? I mean, I think it, it was the schooling, it was the school years and the, and, and the process of understanding who I could be in, in the world or my place in the world in a public school. It was, it was really extremely difficult to go through the, the, the world that way where you were summed up, you know, as being lazy or stupid. Yeah, the lazy thing drove me crazy. Crazy. And 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 at the same time, uh, I knew that there was a deep connection to music and, and sound and opportunity to have a dialogue arrived. Put two yes. together with with certain music 
you're able to communicate not only a feeling, but do something that a dyslexic can never capture in, in, in adolescence, which is get across a feeling, you know, without a visual. You know, it's like film gave me this opportunity to really land in the world and also for the first time control details um, to create emotion. When I'm saying details, it's like two pieces of film put together, certain shots with certain music and an yes. idea. That, that, that whole synergy was um, such a powerful experience to feel because I was forming sentences for the first time. They were visual, but at the same time, I was allowed to talk and can have a conversation. And I was doing it with music. That was my life's thread. So. Yeah, um, I'm thinking about this little moment in Letter to You. Because I'm completely fascinated and have been honestly since I'm 10 years old or 12 years old by Bruce and Stevie's relationship. And there's this little moment in letter to you where Stevie says, uh, well, that's an important point. That was an important point, important thing to know. And that moment there, which is when Bruce corrects them on playing the, uh, that the, the riff is only supposed to happen in the beginning of the song and not during the song. And, but that little moment between the two of them, uh, I could. It, it seems to me like the person with the camera and, the, and editing it is capturing a lot about the way these two people have decided to conduct their relationship now. And it didn't feel thrown away to me at all. It, it, and very different than when he tells Max not to go to the foot yet. Very different from when he wants Roy to play a lick a certain way. The, the, this moment with Steve. Well, why did, you, why did that moment... I, I, what is it about that moment that you were interested in as a filmmaker? Why is it platformed the way that it is? The moment that you're referencing to me... Um is it, it defines the beauty of that relationship between Bruce and Steve. What yep. you see in this is um, an opportunity for film to, to reveal details that make you feel like you're standing next to the guys. If I was in the cutting room and, and just going for sound bites that were driving the story forward, I would have missed that goal gold moment um which is in that pressure moment of creating an album being creative there's these great rhythmic moments of conversation so you need to step into the sink and into the sound of bruce with the e street band because at times it can feel like a a 40 screwball comedy with its rapid fire delivery at times it's the band leader bruce He's telling Max, hold back on that pedal, do this, Roy. And then there's times where you see the synchronicity and the beauty of that relationship between Stevie and Bruce, where it borders on a slight Marx Brothers humor. And also just in that moment, you see a relief of tension, creative tension. So there, there's like, oh, that's an important point, Steve says out loud. And, and, and within that, everyone laughs. Bruce himself, but there's there's many la layers and levels. So many layers in that moment, and 
I've watched that moment a lot of times because talk more about the moment. I want you to talk. I'll tell you what I think, but like talk more about the layers that are there. Yeah. I, I think what I see in that moment as a filmmaker that attracted me to, to Bruce forgetting to give a detail and Stephen saying, oh, that's an important moment. What I saw in that was a way to work and collaborate after years of being together. There's not a big discussion of like, we never said this, or there's not, every, everyone is, they're in a master class in that film in some ways. They understand not only how to talk to each other and work with each other, but not waste any time on a friction or an energy that takes you away from the process. So there's a moment of literally Steve calling Bruce out and saying, you never told us that. And at the same time, it's humorous and it, it moves it all forward. That's the beauty of that film was stepping into that space. And in many, so many ways, it's a master class because they have developed as a band and as men to not get caught up with detail. Like the Parker film. Doesn't Stevie also in that moment, though, because he says it kind of internally and with a little bit of his Silvio Dante thing and a smile on his face. And I also thought it was a way of checking Bruce, but without embarrassing Bruce, without, it, it, it seemed to me that it was an, an understanding. To me, it felt like he was saying, uh, and what you were capturing was, yes, this, this is the general, Bruce the general. General's not infallible, yet he's still our general is what it seemed to me that Stevie was saying. Because Stevie didn't say, and because, you know, Bruce is barking a lot of orders. To get guys get back together. He's like, you know, he is like marshalling the troops. And, and he kind of was blaming them. And Stevie kind of like, because he's the only one in the room who can, it seems to me, in a certain way. Like Roy can do something music, but Steve is the only one, it seems to me, who can actually be like, boss, like, just take a second here. And I just thought it was like you were showing a lot about how Stevie thought of his role as the kind of staff sergeant or yeah, the it, colonel. It, it's, it's, I mean, their, their history does unfold in the footage. You see the shot. Oh, that shot. Dude, that shot when you go back to how handsome, at that one moment when you go back to what Steve, when he was the coolest guy in the world, is amazing. I love it, that choice. And, you see, and, and with that one edit, you see that these guys have been having this conversation forever. And, and, and that to me is the power of cutting. That is the uh, conversation I'm trying to have when I'm making the film. There's not a big exploration of them sitting in a chair as a talking head saying, Steve and I worked together for many years. You just show it. And I love doing that with the power of an edit. That hard cut to Steve in the studio in 1978 to Steve present day. And you see this moment of the two of them collaborating in the same way. That, that, that was letter to you for me. I wanted to show not only Steve, but also John's relationship. And, the, and that's also the, the, the power of the E Street Band, how they do have a secret language, secret language of just gesture. Yeah, you can see with their eyes. I mean, without even saying it, that's another thing I loved. I loved that you gave the moment and it was interesting because you gave this moment, which to people who are not 
right? The hope with this was that a lot of non-Bruce people would watch it, right? Came out big on app, like the way that it was presented. You're hoping a lot of people who aren't Springsteen fanatics, but the way you bring John into the room and you just have, again, Stevie telling us that he's important and the way he takes a seat. But there's also, if we've watched the other documentaries, nothing marks the passage of time and all of us getting older than the difference in John's role when he was the new guy who knew what this was supposed to be. And here, where he's coming to be part of it and support his friend and is much older. And you, you, you don't even flash to those young shots, really, of John. But if we're part of this, as Bruce likes to talk about, this long story, I'll tell you, just, I was just hit with something when, when I saw that. And it, it was moving. And, and had you thought about that? Because like, obviously you kept that moment of, of the welcome in. Of, oh, yeah. John's here, you know. Yeah, and, and, and you know, the, everything that the film letter to you. Mr. Landau, he says, maybe, yeah. Yeah, Mr. Landau. Mr. Landau, right? Yeah. And, just, and um, everything that that film had in those small moments were things that I sat in the room and, and witnessed in other times where, you know, John would walk into the room and Bruce would greet him with this, this affection and, and love. And... You know, sometimes they would just hit me, like because I would have footage of them in '78, and I would just look at it and think, "These guys are exactly the same. This is the way they looked in '78, the way they're listening to playback or whatever it may be." So, I really tried to keep a lot of these moments um, in the edit. And when I was cutting it, I really stepped back and and thought, "Those are the kind of things to have." How does it look when the band arrives? How does it look when John arrives? What is being said? Everything is important to, to unfold a world that I've been privileged to be around for 20 years, but also I wanted to share it in this movie, share it in this space. So you see Stevie greet John and Bruce, everyone hugging. You see Bruce doing the ritual, the shots. In this, uh, yeah. I was able to share uh, a universe that I've been lucky enough to be around, but it was the first time to get it on film. Another thing that's made me think about, as you say, you've been around this 20 years. You know, John's been around it 40 years. Stevie's been around it 50 years. And it seems to me that Bruce is like, I, I, I was just like kind of free writing this morning and I was thinking about how Steve was Bruce's guide. And then when Bruce really became Bruce and Steve wasn't sure how to intersect with that, he left. He told me the story on this podcast. It's one of the first times he ever said it was the biggest mistake of his life to get on that plane. And he knew at the moment he was on the plane to Africa, he knew he'd made the biggest mistake of his life. And Bruce welcomed him back. But I think about like the, the ways in which Bruce's constant ascent and, and, and willingness to d- dive deep and keep pushing has, has changed the nature of those creative relationships and who needs what at a given time has shifted. And, but it does seem that Bruce has kept certain figures there, not just the band, but in various spots 
to bounce off of, and 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 a con- there's a consistency to that. And what do you how do what do you think that's about as as one of those figures? I don't want to speak. It's hard. I, I don't want to speak for Bruce on that because, but I can just tell you what I. Yeah. What do you feel? As a- I feel, I feel like it's it's been fascinating to to watch um, someone work in that place where. They, they take in the new possibility with people who know, like the idea of the way he treats the E Street Band and also his relationship with John is fascinating for me as a filmmaker because you, you see a commitment to the relationship and it, it feels really rare. I, I just feel like um, he's built this place of especially now it's built this place of trust within that band, but also it's, it's built this opportunity for them to all develop together at, at this master level. And you would not have that without the commitment of the journey and the band. Yes, there's moments that he does something solo and yes, there's moments he has had other bands, but I think the idea of that commitment of working with a group, it just doesn't feel like it happens. But, but it's interesting because in 78, I would just say as a filmmaker, so I'm not asking you to speak for Bruce, but as, a, as the close observer, as the, as the person telling this story to the rest of us, you know, 76, 77, 78, in many ways, Steve's, until John's was firm, but even the two of them, Steve's opinion was the most important opinion in the world, it seems, when I watch the documentaries. Not saying whatever I've read on the outside. It seems like if Steve thought it was cool, it gave Bruce a little faith that it was cool. And then it, it's not that it's shifted, but it does seem, well, what do you think, what are you trying to show? Because like if we, uh, for the, so we talked about it for the casual fan, but for the dedicated fan who's read the book, the dedicated fan knows the difficult conversations Bruce has had with every single member of that band. The dedicated fan knows the story of when he said to whichever band member it was, uh, you're, you're the highest paid person at your position in the world. If you find someone who's making more than you, come back to me and I'll top that. But until then, we got nothing to talk about. So we also come to this movie knowing that stuff. Mm-hmm. And right. So what are you, because Bruce said, and it's not what someone else said, it's Bruce's own, those are Bruce's own words. How is that being synthesized into what we're watching here? Because I think it is. So how well, is it in your mind? In my opinion, I, I, I've worked on two films that have dealt, well, not two films, but I've worked on a lot of films that have dealt with the E Street Band as, as this, this thing in Bruce's life and the power of it. When you look at The Darkness on the Edge of Town film, I didn't hide from conflict right. because that, that was found in the archival footage. There's arguments on screen. But also with, with Bruce himself, I sat there in interviews and he talked about the power of having those two different voices of John and Steve and how yeah. he would work them off of each other. Yes. Well, the beauty of Letter to You is that you're looking at people who have not only developed as friends, but as artists. And it's a full circle. So what you get is the best of the craft because Bruce is able to tap into his Steve energy, tap into his John energy. People are developed enough to be able to make a joke in the moment to release tension like you referenced, Stephen, or 
be able to be just in the presence of supporting Roots, the artist, John. He, he didn't produce that album, but I can tell you, you know, when Bruce was asking something musically, he would turn to John or it just, you know, there's moments that stole that conversation happening, though not in the formal role producer. So what I see with the beauty of Letter to You is the development, the arc, and, and you know, the, the beauty of the collaboration of Bruce and the E Street Band together. And those other films, I explore the conflicts. Born to, yes. Run, Born to Run was a film about, you know, not being able to, to find a sound in the studio or also finding the E Street Band itself. You discovered Max and Roy and what elements they brought in. Each one of the films, um, in some ways, brought me to the place of Letter to You. Because, yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah, it's, it, 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 is, it is an arc. Do you have uh, footage or are you going to make sure to get footage? Because I think about John, who I had the pleasure to speak to recently, but I think about John and the other careers he could have had because he's so brilliant. And because anytime he dipped his toe into producing anything, it just was a massive success in the defining record in that artist's life. And, you know, I mean, he produced Running on Empty for fuck's sake. Yeah. And uh, for Jackson. And... and and he doesn't really give long interviews uh, now. In the, uh, do you have archive? Are, are you getting footage so you have it for whenever you might want to yeah, deploy I, it or Bruce wants I, to deploy it? I have a lot of conversations. I also got to work on, I do have a lot of conversations with John. And I also got to work on one, one of the most enjoyable films. It was, it was literally five minutes long, but it was for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And it covered John's life. And, and I interviewed John and I... I treated it like a little feature film, even though it was only for five oh, minutes. I haven't seen that somehow. Can you send me a link to that? I would I'll really love to see it. What's amazing with the life of John Landau is how many things he worked on. And also, you know, like the, the artistry in his work with Rolling Stone and, and just his love of music and, and producing Jackson Brown's, um, the Pretender album. Yes. And, and just also his... Um, his friendship with me and support has been essential in, in my filmmaking journey, uh, along with Bruce and, and, and uh, Barbara Carr. But really, John, John is a film buff, and, and we connect on many, many levels. And you know, working on that five-minute film on his life was just fabulous. We had such a good time, and, and I, I realized I'm working you know, with, with a writer and an editor and that form with John and, and, and also with Bruce. And I, I definitely feel like they've had a strong influence on my filmmaking. Yes, of course. Uh, and, and thanks for correcting me. It was The Pretender Not Running on Empty that he produced. I, I like to get that shit right, not wrong. I didn't look it up. I just was remembering. When you look at your own, you know, Bruce has this restlessness that caused him to go down different roads at different times. And I wonder where you see yourself now. Like, I'm sure you didn't, though you said you'd hope to make more films of them. I imagine your stated goal as a filmmaker when you started wasn't, I'm going to make as many films about Bruce Springsteen as I can. And 
So how do you see it all? I, I, I mean, I'm happy you do because I literally have watched all these films more than I've, I've watched every one of them like three or four times, not to prepare for this, just in my general, in the general course of my life. Uh, so I'm glad you're making them, but, but I'm glad you're making them. But what, 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 what do you think about as far as when you look at the next 15 years of uh, making, making movies? I mean, I really want to push myself in in the storytelling, and also, you know, been exploring narrative and scripted uh, material, and and I had a, a um, early on as an editor, I had had said to somebody, um, my dream would be to work with Bruce, yeah, but he wasn't in films, and. Um, it was that and 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 Scorsese, <laughs> um, and I was talking about it as a, a an editor. So in in some ways, I look at the next fifteen years that I, I I'm I'm chasing those things that attracted me to those types of artists, um, which are strong stories, really strong characters, and 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 really keep learning from uh, these experiences every time you go into one of these films. You walk away uh, with, with with so much, yes. and it's a great blessing to dive into the world of Elvis or Johnny Cash, explore how to tell these stories visually. You learn so much about yourself. You learn so much about the artistic journey, and somehow it kind of all ties into a chapter into your life that you have forever. Yeah, that makes total sense. Did you uh, the Garalnik the Garalnik Sam Phillips book came out after you made Elvis, right? No, no, it was um, be- it was way before. The the Sam Phillips Peter Garal okay, the, the, no, the Sam Phillips book movie. not the Elvis book the Sam Phillips yeah, book I think I got a copy of it before right I, before I, yeah. I just I just read it and I just kind of like can't believe someone has to tell the definitive Sam Phillips story on film yeah I think it's I think they have it locked up and some reason they yeah. I know I talked to Groundlick's kid who's like would like, but someone's got to, I, I, I don't think I'm, because the, the documentary, it's, someone needs to make like an amazing, before everybody's dead, someone needs to do that. You'd be, you'd be the best person to really do it. And because you, you know, you do revisit subjects and go deeper. And there is a way that you could, I think this, you know, when you think about the fact that Sam was the first person to ever record a BB King and like nobody even knows that really. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. You know, it's kind of nuts. Well, those are the details I love. I love either with the Bruce films or the other films I've been working on. Is this like finding those lost details? And I always like it's between always two big chapter points. Wait yes. a minute, you know, Sam. You know, um, you know I just with, with Elvis too. There were so many moments of of really figuring out how is this story been told this way. Well, you know, Elvis has only been talked about from a a cartoon point of view. So let's go to it as music being the focus. And again, that that yeah. also is the theme of. of oh, okay, the- but as a filmmaker, I'd say people should watch what you chose to do at the opening of that movie because, yeah, the music's the focus, but you do start on like the most compelling face ever to sing into a microphone. Yeah. And, you know, you do make the choice to sort of show us. Uh, I mean, the same way people do with Ali. Like, there were only a couple of figures in our lifetimes who had the whole thing. And Ali was one, and Elvis was, like, maybe the other. There were not that many. I, I, I totally agree. And, and the power of that close-up, the power, you know, like, 
working with Bruce and I was doing Springsteen on Broadway, I, I just was, you know, the, the whole, the whole thing of using the power of those close-ups certain moments and, and, and the 68 special with Elvis has that where it's so magical. You, you are instantly grounded to the it, it was a great choice. No, I loved the choice. Okay. But I, as a, I have a tonal question and we, just a few more questions for you, but you know, in this endless, for me anyway, deconstruction of the dichotomy between Bruce and Bob. And, and it's not that they're my two, only two favorites of all time. Like, from I'm a Lou Reed freak and I, you know, uh, Paul Simon and all that stuff, but somehow it always does come right back to Bruce and Bob for me. And, um, and if we look at the documentaries and this isn't really about you and Marty as different because it's really driven in a certain way I want about the artists, you know, there's this question of ironic detachment and as, as essential to modern art. And it's something that Bruce Springsteen has never even had one minute's worth of time for. And it's something that Bob Dylan practically invented. And when I look at the Dylan documentaries, they're like Mary Prankster documentaries. They are uh, so aware of the fact that they're meta documents. And, and, uh, and you know, they, they might be presented with the, the, you might watch them and think, oh, well, Bob didn't have final a cut because it's Marty, but of course, Bob and Jeff Rosen had the cut on those movies, certainly on the last one. And I, you know, I guess the question is about the risk of being earnest. My wife is a filmmaker, and I always talk about this. You know, there is almost no risk in ironic detachment anymore, which is ironic. And there's a tremendous risk in being earnest because when you're earnest, it's not considered high art. When you're earnest, it's easy to be uh, just taken as milk toast, and I will say, if I look at these films, they are earnest. It's why part of why I love them. They're not ironic, and they're not taking the piss. They're not taking the piss out of us for loving Bruce. The Bob documentaries are challenging us. Why, you know, uh, are, are daring us to still love Bob at the end. The Bruce films are saying. This is a guy worth loving. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I, I think, you know. And you can disagree if you don't think that's what the Bob films well, do. Say whatever you want. You know, I'm a huge, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Dylan and I'm a huge fan of, uh, I mean, huge fan. What does that mean? I, it means that I have thousands of recordings of Bob, seen him the most outside of Bruce. Um, and looked and, and known all those films and, and love them and, you know, when I look at my journey uh, with Bruce and the storytelling, I, 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 I don't back away from letting uh, an emotional side come out in the filmmaking that examines the themes that he's throwing at me. Uh, it's a quiet conversation I have with Bruce. So I, I know it's going to end up in the world with a viewer, but when you receive a text that 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 stirs you and makes you think about your place in life in the world as a filmmaker i think it, it it's a great great challenge to step into those words and 
and you end up in this place of of um, gratitude for getting these like this voice overthrown at you that makes you feel this way. Yes. It's so powerful. So the idea of of putting a spin on it or or um, in some weird ways it's not it, I, I I have really it's harder to live in the space of those words and put visuals with it. Imagine you get a voiceover where Bruce says, you know, where do we go when we die? Well, what's your image that you're going to put with that? I sat with that line for a real long time. And the last thing I want to do is kind of challenge the viewer um, to, to really decode or even put something ironic against. I feel like there's moments of Bruce that are pure humor and laughter and I can engage with him in that conversation. But then there's other moments that I go to a quiet place and I, I think it's less of making a film for a world. It's a quiet conversation I'm having with Bruce. And that comes in those spaces of the voiceover. So when I look at Letter to You, I cut that in my apartment in Brooklyn. Yeah. And I would edit all night long and, and, and deal with this voiceover that challenged me. How did it challenge me? It challenged me to think about my own life and passing and what I was leaving behind as a filmmaker, but also the relationship with Bruce that it wouldn't be forever. There was that, that film was being made while something new called the pandemic was going on. So it is a perfect storm of a lot of emotions and thoughts. And, and I feel like I, I enjoy it. I enjoy the, the Dylan films tremendously and that, I, you know, the, the ironic approach to some of the, the filmmaking styles and things like that. I feel like with the conversation with Bruce on, on the dots, we have these moments of humor, but also just like his songs and, and concerts, yeah. the range where he goes to a place. So, you, you know, I always think about Bruce's live events. You have this moment of ramrod, but then you also have, moment of jungle land so he he's always given the full spectrum you know the full of the course full. lastly for now and thanks for for this and for your openness yeah, it's a great conversation yeah thank you uh it's awesome um uh when you see that it's bruce calling is it just totally cool now in your mind or is it still like is there a moment of wow that's bruce springsteen calling you know it's a great question um I'm at a place that when I see Bruce calling, um, I think, "Hey, what's up?" That's awesome. And 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 um, I answer I answer it with um, I answer it with a tone of trying to listen, trying to listen to like what's he got going because you never know. It, it, it'll be like yeah. in two days' time we're gonna get together and I've got the band. Um, or it's a more of a casual thing. And, and within a millisecond, I'll have a sense of it. Um, but uh, I, feel, I feel lucky to be around him enough that um, I, have, I can enjoy both worlds where I do have moments where he puts on the guitar and stands next to Steve and he hits a chord in the studio and I'm like, oh my God, that's Bruce Springsteen. That's the E Street Band. I still carry that with me when I make the films. I want to bring that part. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's another part of me that after 20 years, 
um, is a is a collaborator. So I, I'm grateful for that. And and when I see his name flash, I go, oh, I wonder what's up. And oh, that's awesome. I, I get ready for the next adventure. Well, that's that's great. Uh, Thanks for doing this. People go see Tom's films. They're available all over the internet and they're really worth your time. He told me what he's working on next, but I can't tell you, but I'm really excited for it. And um, hey, are you on Instagram? Do you put po photos yeah. on Instagram? What name yeah. are you under there? Uh, it's T-Z-I-M-N-Y-C. So find Tom there. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. You can... Uh, Email me at themomentbk at gmail.com if you need me. And uh, we will see you next time. Thanks, everybody.